Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. In this podcast, we will have two talks in one. We're in the company of Nick Portnell, an operations analyst from the Thames Valley Police and an expert in using Esri Arc GIS, and Dr. Aidan Sidebottom from the Jill Dando Institute of Security and Crime Science at UCL for the first talk. Halfway through, we're going to switch interviewees to welcome Jamie Howell, a police officer from Thames Valley Police, who focuses on problem-solving approaches to crime. Superintendent Mark Cleland, who is a senior police officer in the British Transport Police and is the cycle crime lead for the United Kingdom. And Owen Miller, a development officer and analyst for Thames Valley Police, who specialises in mapping crime. In both talks, we'll be discussing the issues of bike crime, nationally and in the Oxford area, what can be done to prevent it, and how an understanding of geography and ArcGIS can contribute to the whole process. Welcome, Nick and Aidan. I'm going to begin with a shocking national statistic. The number of bikes being stolen in London has almost trebled since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, with over 3,000 bicycles stolen per month towards the end of 2020. Um, Can we start with a response to that statistic? Um, Why has bike crime shot up so much? Yeah, I've seen those statistics as well and was shocked like you were. There's been a flurry of research looking at how COVID-19, and in particular the changes in our everyday behaviours as a result of the lockdown restrictions have affected crime. And many crime types have reduced over the lockdown period. But evidently, there seems to be this spike in bicycle theft, particularly in London. There are a few possible explanations for this. Some have argued that more bikes have been stolen because of economic reasons. Many people have lost their jobs and had their livelihoods affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, and the theft and sale of bikes might compensate for those losses. Personally, and I say this without doing any research, I'm more inclined to look at opportunity and cost as the chief explanations for why bike theft's gone up over the last year. So, In terms of opportunity, actually a lot of people have taken to their bikes over the past year. Exercise has been allowed during lockdown. Cycling is a good form of exercise. It's a good form of the environment. So all things being equal, we know that more bikes equals more opportunities for theft and often results in increases in bike theft. And there's loads of evidence to support that basic relationship. Secondly, then, cost. And this is interesting. The price of bikes has gone up considerably in the past year. I've seen estimates of about 20-30% increase. And the reasons for that are complex. So part of it is due to basic supply and demand. More people are wanting bikes, more people are keen to start cycling, and so that drives up price. But equally, there's been lots said about the added cost to manufacturing, these long wait times or shortages for key components of bikes, partly due to COVID, but also due to Brexit and negotiations about trade deals and so on. And so that's meant that the price for many bikes has gone up. And again, there's lots of evidence to show in crime prevention that as items become more valuable, they become more attractive to offenders, they're easier to sell, and therefore we see increases in theft. And so it's interesting how these global developments have nothing to do with crime, you know, COVID, Brexit, can actually and have actually influenced bike theft at the local level. Um, Well, I haven't carried out any work directed at bike theft recently, but from experience um, looking at GIS software and spatial data this would fall into potentially the repeat and near repeat victimization where there are mainly two types of repeats you have the boost theory where the um, victimization is boosted 
because the initial incident um, was successful and the offender got away with it. And also there is the flag theory where you have some enduring characteristic in the area which makes it attractive. So that, for example, could be a bicycle park where there's little or no CCTV coverage, very small footfall going past it, and it makes an attractive target for offenders. Uh, the, The other theory that can come into it is a consideration around the optimal forager where it's a concept of likening offenders to animals where the animal makes a trade-off between the energy used to gain to get to food and is that is immediately available and the effort that it will take to uh, to reach a better food source further away. Aidan could you explain what you do as a crime scientist? Sure so uh, one answer would be an ac- I'm an academic. I work at University College London. So in a broad sense, I do a combination of research, teaching, and then supervision of students. But I'm also a crime scientist, which is different to a traditional criminologist. Crime science is a very applied discipline And it's interested in doing research which is meant to inform crime prevention and policing. And so much of my research over the past 15 or so years has been looking at how you can analyse crime in order to inform crime prevention and particularly how you should and could evaluate the impact of those interventions so that we can better understand what works in what circumstances, so that we can move really towards a more evidence-based approach to policing and crime prevention. And Nick, does your role as an analyst also include mapping? Yes, it does. Um, My title is an operations analyst. Um, However, for the last five years, I've become more of a GIS lead for uh, our intelligence sort of section and the force on a whole and i've been more training analysts in their initial and intermediate courses but um yeah the the two the two main types of analysts that we have the the local analyst and the operations analyst there's a lot of mapping involved and anything that's got a, a, a spatial location whether it's a an x and a y in easting and northing or even down to lsoas or so that's the local the lower layer super output area used by the office of national statistics any or, or postcodes um so we do map a lot of information uh, and, that, and that goes as well with the um, the communications data so if we get any data around phones we can map that as well A piece was written about you, uh, labelling you as a GIS hero uh, on your recent COVID-19 compliance dashboard. Could you elaborate on any project uh, that you work on that involves GIS? And can you tell us about the software you use? Okay, yeah, uh, GIS hero. uh, The title hero doesn't really sit well, but uh, I'll take it. The um, recent projects, I've done some work around CCTV uh, with working with a partner partners in the county councils where they were looking to rationalize cctv estates in the in their area so um, we did some work around uh, certain crime types mapping the crime types carrying out kernel density estimation or hotspot analysis plotting the cctv camera locations as they were uh, and seeing basically if the, the cctv cameras were in the correct locations to monitor the the majority of the crimes and I, I was very pleased at the end of the project where instead of retiring cameras they bought more and upgraded the estate which was a good result for us and the council i believe we've also started looking at vulnerable locality indexing which is a, uh, a tactic i learned from the uh, ucl the, the jill dando institute in college of london which um, is, is basically uh, around five st- uh, statistics, two crime and some demographic data. And these five uh, values are put into formulas and the resulting value is mapped again to your LSOA. Uh, and that gives us a, a suggestive finger point to some communities where cohesion may be starting to fail and could probably do with some added attention from our neighborhood policing teams uh, and 
finally, the drink driving, we've started using some of the dashboards to share data between forces, Hampshire and ourselves in TVP. So for the, the annual drink drug driving campaign, whereas before maps were just printed out onto a PDF or a Word document, now they have a dynamic map where, where the data is uploaded daily. Uh, are showing where the incidents have occurred so that they, the sergeants can plan future operations. You both clearly work in crime prevention. Aidan, how does your work differ from Nick's? Is it specifically on bike crime? Uh, no, not at all. No, I, I follow wherever the projects and interests are. So not just bike crime, not just crime, actually. I've done a lot of work recently looking at patterns in missing persons incidents because the police are routinely called on to respond to cases of missing persons and just like with bike theft there are patterns in missing persons events so perhaps my role differs to Nick in that I'm interested in trying to identify patterns trying to develop and test theories that explain those patterns and also a large part of my work is about evaluating what the police and other practitioners do, packaging up, synthesizing, distilling that evidence and presenting it in a form that is then relevant to practitioners so that we can have this kind of cycle of learning from doing and then that informing what others are doing when trying to deal with their local problems be it in Oxford or anywhere else in, in England and Wales. In the 2020 crime survey for England and Wales, uh, most people responded saying that the cost of stolen items um, was between £100 and £499. Um, you mentioned earlier that you thought there'd been a 20 to 30% increase in, in the cost of, of bikes. So are bikes getting more expensive and, and therefore becoming stolen more because they're valuable? It looks. It certainly looks that way. The, over the last year, eighteen months, there definitely has been this increase in the price of of bikes as a result of both COVID and Brexit and the trade deals with that. And we also know from crime prevention more generally that as items become more valuable, they tend to become more desirable to thieves, mainly because they can get more money for the theft act and if there's demand for items then it's generally easier for an offender to sell them and so if you've got increases in the price of an item typically they become more desirable and i think that partly explains why we have seen this increase in bike theft in certain parts of the uk over the past year or so Nick, why do Oxford and Cambridge suffer so much from bike crime? Do some of your projects also identify them as hotspots for crime? As you've rightly said, the um, I, I don't, I haven't done a, a project on this, but I would imagine that, especially with Oxford, uh, my, my local city, uh, that the move and the push is to reduce car travel into the town centre, and with the um, the universities and the colleges and the students, uh, I think for that reason that the the amount of bicycles that are needed and available at the moment is just increasing all the time. Just following on from Nick, I agree that Oxford, Cambridge and other university cities often appear as these sort of hotspots. They're the towns and cities where bike theft tends to concentrate. And again, there are several reasons for that. One is the influx of students, and you can see that when you look at the levels of bike theft over the course of the year. You typically see a spike around September, October, when you have this influx of students to these particular cities. And so more bikes equals more opportunities for cycle theft. And again, there's lots of evidence to show that that basic relationship holds when you have more cyclists, we tend to see more cycle theft. But it's a bit more nuanced than that. If you've got lots of cyclists in an area, then demand for cycle parking typically outstrips supply. You've got more bikes than you have bike stands. What that means is 
that you have lots of bikes that are so-called fly parked, i.e. they're parked to street furniture that wasn't designed for that purpose. And you've all seen that, bikes parked to railings and trees and lampposts. And one of the consequences of that is it's hard to lock your bike securely to street furniture that wasn't designed to try and facilitate secure locking practice. And so in these university towns, you often have a high proportion of fly parking and with it, a high proportion of insecurely locked bikes. The final thing, I think, which explains why places like Oxford and Cambridge have high levels of bike theft is it's not just opportunities. It's also that you generally have a buoyant, vibrant, secondhand bike market in these cities. You've got people that are coming to university and looking to buy a bike there. And having a vibrant secondhand market provides a easy route by which offenders might sell stolen bikes, unbeknownst to the student that's purchasing it. So all those things together seem to contribute to why places like Oxford and Cambridge historically have high levels of bike theft. Aidan, you've written about gating alleyways to make them secure, uh, using targeted publicity to reduce bike theft and registration recovery. Are they the solution or is it really all down to locking practice? I wish it was just down to locking practice. That would make bike crime prevention a lot easier. Truth be told, secure locking practice doesn't eradicate bike theft offenders are adaptive they look to circumvent security measures that are put in place and so improving locking practice won't rid the world of bike theft there's loads of other contributory factors you know uh, what a bike's locked to the proportion of offenders in a given area but with good prevention what you're often looking for are so-called pinch points these are the characteristics of a particular problem that might be amenable to change. So when you look at bike theft, there's a whole lot of things that might account for why a bike's stolen or not. They relate to the offender, what a bike's locked to, the type of the bike, how it's locked, a whole host of things that might influence whether a bike's stolen. With locking practice, though, we know from research that generally locking practice is pretty poor you're much more likely to see bad locking practice than secure locking practice. That's a pinch point. That's something that's amenable to change. That's something that we, as crime preventers, might look to do something about. And arguably, that's easier than trying to catch bike thieves in the act. And so why my work is focused on locking practice is I'd like to think that's something that we can do something about through subtly changing the environment, giving stickers at the point in which you lock your bike to say, hey, this is what secure locking practice looks like, try and emulate it. Or even redesigning bike parking stands to try and encourage you to lock your bike in a more secure manner. So no, it's not all about locking practice, but I'd like to think that locking practice is one of those low-hanging fruits that falls within something that we can do something about. We can make some actual changes to that, which hopefully would then lead to reductions in bike theft. Aidan, Nick, that's been a really interesting first talk. Thank you very much for uh, joining us today. We're going to move on to our second talk now, uh, which is more Oxford-specific. Thank you once again. This is the second talk of our podcast with uh, Owen, Jamie and Mark. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm going to start the second half with another statistic. Oxford boasts the highest rate of cycle thefts in the UK, with 2,050 incidents documented in 2018-2019, which makes for one in every 81 people. Jamie, can you give us a summary of what the project you're involved in is trying to do in Oxford to tackle bicycle crime? 
Yeah, so in 2019, we commenced a group with partners across the city from local authorities to universities to look at the issue of the rising epidemic of bike theft in the city, which has been prevalent for well over a decade in the time that I've been policing in the city. And we wanted to look at the different approaches that each of us could take in terms of how we could tackle it and reduce the numbers of theft. Um, we know from a policing experience that we struggle significantly to identify offenders or perhaps even just the stolen bikes themselves so that we um, then are limited in our impact that we could do from a policing enforcement element in terms of how having some significant impact on the large numbers that we have go missing. So a lot of it has been focused around learning from other areas and working nationally with with people like um, Mark and, and others to identify some different tactics and approaches. And so we looked um, predominantly at behavioural changes and, and how we might change both situationally locations that um, people would park their bike, but also individuals' perceptions of how they should look after them and then hopefully have then the intended impact towards a thief being less likely to want to steal in those areas or those particular bikes. So Project Breakaway, which is looking at a small area of East Oxford, um, is focused around the residents and students that live in the area, um, heavily dominated with HMO promises. So you get multiple bikes at different um, different addresses that have no location within them to actually secure them, either in the gardens or within the properties themselves. So a lot of it has been focused around providing some on-street level of cycle parking, um, putting in uh, something that encourages the user to focus their locking practice. So we've utilised in this case a street pod where somebody can place the front wheel of their bike into an encasement and then focus with their one lock, which predominantly people will carry, on the rear portion of the bike, which is in theory the more expensive end of the bike, focusing on keeping that in, uh, safe and secure in there. What we're hoping then is to see that this as a product has a better impact on reducing um, the numbers of bikes being stolen that are utilising uh, public parking spaces as opposed to um, more generic Sheffield stands that we see across the city where they're not really best placed for long-term parking, which we know people within the city, especially students, do utilise them for as they have nowhere to leave them long term when they leave the city to go home for end of terms and summer holidays. So that's one big element of what we're looking at and we should be achieving this month. The other idea is to really upsell the idea of bike registration. So we have been going to all the individual residential addresses within the area of the zone to encourage them to sign up through us with Bike Register to really enhance um, the numbers of bikes within the city that we've got registered so that we've got a better opportunity in the long run to hopefully really return those bits of property to individuals, which is a, a key element of something we really want to achieve in terms of you know, supporting the community in, in the efforts that we can we can provide them as a police service. So bike registration is a key one and we're offering them the free them free bike marking kits to go alongside that registration so we can just enhance it a little bit more. And then to kind of encourage the uptake in that we're offering out secured by design D locks to kind of help enhance that so that we've then potentially got bike owners out there that have got the ability to have multiple locks. Um, which we know is obviously better than than one, so that can, it can help enhance and protect those bikes again just further. So what we were focusing on in that, that area is is really seeing if we can change the behaviours of the owners of bikes, but also hopefully deter the interest of the area, which has been so prevalent over recent years, which data showed for those bike thieves to go around and really steal the bikes from those properties. So we're hoping to see you know, over some over time, some sustained reduction in the numbers of those bikes. And if we can show that our potentially our street pods themselves are more impacted in terms of protecting the bike, then hopefully that's something we can put back to our partners when they're looking at longer term infrastructural changes around the increased numbers of cyclists coming into the city and how we're going to better protect, offer better protection to them and their cycles when they're coming into the city. Um, so that's kind of where the project breakaway is really focused and hopefully we, we aim to see some results out of that sort of I'd say over the coming six to twelve months once we know things are a bit bit, bit 
bit more back to normal after the pandemic and we get more use within the city around cycling. Mark, I understand you lead on work nationally around bike crime. Could you explain a bit more about your role and the current challenges around bike theft in England and Wales? Yeah, uh, I mean, this is wider than England and Wales, so we're trying to incorporate the whole of the UK. So we look at Scotland, uh, Northern Ireland as well. So um, because if if we're tackling crime in England and Wales, why not tackle it everywhere in the UK? Um, everyone needs to feel that love. So that's what we uh, what our focus is. Um, some of the challenges then. So um, data is a really key thing. Um, you, you, you talked about the uh, cycle crime in Oxford and what the data is, suggests is one of the worst places in the country. Um, and part of the problem is we, we, we don't really understand what the problem is. Um, data is based on uh, a number of things. So uh, police statistics. Uh, so people are actually reporting a crime to the police. But we already know there's a big discrepancy between uh, police statistics and uh, the British uh, crime survey. So uh, police stats will say about uh, 95,000 bikes a year are stolen. Um, uh, but then uh, the British crime survey will say about 300,000. So there's a big difference between um, what the public is saying is happening and what the police uh, know is happening. Um, and it's how do we capture that then going forward? Because if we're actually going to tackle cybercrime, um, we really need to understand what the issue is. So not just um, where the crime is happening, so we can understand and put measures in place to tackle those areas where crime is happening, but also how it's happening. So um, is the issue around uh, a bike stolen from public streets? Are they stolen from people's houses? as a result of burglary? Um, is it because uh, the type of lock people use uh, are most victims using cheap cable locks rather than um, secure D locks? Are they using uh, secure parking methods? Uh, there's all sorts of issues uh, where we're trying to tease out that sort of information from the crime data, but it's, it's really difficult. And again, the, one of the other issues is um, it's really hard to centralize all the data from police forces a lot of us a lot of it is uh, having to reach out to each force and and try and get data from them uh to bring it all together and then uh, do some analysis on it so we did much of this about 18 months ago with some um uk-wide analysis of cybercrime, where we picked out some victimology identified uh, who is more likely to have their bike stolen um things such as if you have your bike stolen, you're probably less likely to buy another bike. Um, and then that has implications for actually, um, if, if people are a victim of crime, then they're not going to cycle to work. They're probably going to jump in their car. They're not exercising. They're contributing to the uh, pollution in the environment uh, and as wider issues. Um, looking at the uh, the uptake of cycle security, so you know we, we don't really know from crime reporting how people are locking their bikes. So there's obviously some nudge behaviour we could do then if we understood that that we can we can give people the advice they need to go and protect their property. Um, so at the moment we do quite a lot of work around trying to understand where those crime issues are. Uh, we are setting up crime reduction partnerships in uh, cities. So uh, probably one of the, the very first uh, was uh, Thames Valley Police in Oxford um, and the amazing work they've done in Oxford around forming a cycle crime reduction partnership that looks at all the wider issues around bike ownership, parking, uh, crime prevention, advice, best practice uh, to actually tackle it. So they, they're probably one of the leaders across the country. Um, we've uh, we've rolled that model out to other cities, so uh, Manchester, Birmingham, Cambridge, um, Glasgow. Uh, we've just set one up in Newport in South Wales, which starts this week. Um, and what we find is this, this isn't just a police problem. This is actually, it's almost like a community problem. It's for everyone to contribute and solve. Um, and we take that sort of problem-solving approach, so... Whereas the police can go out and do the enforcement side of activity. Um, we can look at education and marking events. 
actually we can use the local authority to do more around cycle parking standards we can use local charities to raise awareness and and do more to help cyclists and um, look at best practice around how they lock their bikes uh, how we can educate school kids how we can get into um, cycle to work schemes and provide education um, so there's lots of opportunities around that um, some of the work we've done with the government cycling and walking strategy is to look at uh, cycle registration and uh, cycle databases um, so there's a home office project at the moment looking at the whole uh, stolen property markets which is not just focused on cycle crime but looking at all other types of property that are likely to be part of acquisitive crime um, and what we're looking at is actually if if people registered their property um, it gives the police an opportunity to recover stolen property and return it to the owner but it also makes it much harder for criminals to offload it on um, either like a, a second-hand reseller or uh, an online marketplace, for example, because they should can't, they those sorts of places can't carry out due diligence checks to to carry out a check to see if that stuff is stolen. So, um, bike registers is a really good example. They've just registered their millionth bike uh, this the last few weeks. Um, and that affords us the opportunity then to uh, check a bicycle if we come across it, uh, see if it's reported lost or stolen on that database. Um, the benefits of that are that if we recover a bike, then we can give it back to the owner. But it also gives us a bit of a, a bit of evidence to say that uh, we've got an audit trail of that property being stolen, which helps us get a conviction for those involved in the uh, the theft of that sort of stuff. Registration then is the next bit because, again, all these databases are only as good as actually people registering their property. So there's a big push now to work with manufacturers looking at point of sale uh, and registering. Uh, and they're really good intervention points then to, to give a bit of uh, awareness raising and education about what good cycle security looks like. Um, the best lock. Uh, because while we talk about D-locks, you know, it's not all about carrying a D-lock around with you. It's it's the right lock for the right circumstance. So, you know, if you if you've locked if if you've put your bike in your garage, you know, perhaps you want to lock it to something, use a D-lock in your garage where you're not going to look at that bike for a, for a couple of weeks, perhaps. If you've gone to a cafe and you sat in a cafe, you might just use a cheap cable lock to lock it next to you so no one can just grab and run. Um, so it's just having an awareness of what the right security is for the right circumstances um, and just thinking about it. Um, we've got a, quite a detailed action plan as well. Uh, it's our cycle and security plan. Uh, lots of actions which looks at data, enforcement, uh, education, registration, forensic marking, all sorts of stuff in there. Um, and uh, as a result, we've now got a a six-weekly uh, cycle crime action plan with all our police partners and uh, uh, industry leads in cycle crime, which has helped drive in a lot of best practice and activity and targeting those who are involved in cycle crime. Uh, we're doing work with eBay and Gumtree around uh, the sale of stolen property on marketplaces. Um, and obviously, we've got that home office project as well, which is uh, ongoing around looking at stolen property. Uh, so it's a really busy time, actually. And um, the one thing uh, I've looked at, we've got a National Cycle Crime Conference in July. Um, and I think that's a really good opportunity uh, for us to work on a national cycle crime campaign, uh, roll that out during the summer, but also uh, carry out a week of action and look at what other opportunities there are to raise the profile of cycle crime and uh, give people the opportunity to do something to love their property and protect it as best they can. Owen, um, the Thames Valley Police have developed a, a model project by the sounds of it, which places like Newport have replicated, as Mark said. What role do you facilitate um, on the project? Yeah, so, so I, am, I am the analyst for the project and it's my job to take all of those kind of really difficult, challenging uh, bits of data that Mark was talking about there um, to try and pull it into one place and hopefully make 
enough sense of it that we can then do some work to reduce it. So whether it's understanding a little bit more about our um, reported crime that comes directly to us, whether it's understanding a little bit more about the demographics of the people that live in particular areas and um, bringing all of that together and then hopefully coming up, yeah, as I say, with a package that we can then um, do some really good interventions off the back of. So is bicycle crime part opportunism from criminals? Are they just walking past your unlocked bike and they just quickly jump on it and cycle it away? Or is it also laziness uh, on the on the part of the, the owner? Um, there, are, there are problems around bike locking, as I understand it. Perhaps, Owen, you could start first and then, uh, Jamie, you might want to come in afterwards on that question. Yeah, so I think um, certainly what we see around, around bike crime is it's a little bit of everything. There is a, there is a little bit of that opportunist theft where someone will see an unlocked bike um, and if they're in the mood or if they've gone out looking for a bike to steal, they, they will see it. There is nothing to stop them from stealing that bike or very little to stop them from stealing that bike. And they will then obviously disappear with that. We do also see bike thefts where people go to um, quite a, a great amount of effort to remove bikes that have been locked up, particularly when that bike might be a particularly expensive or nice bike that's been parked up in an area. Um, and they might have um, an angle grinder even or a kind of a decent set of tools to remove that bike from where it's been locked up. Um, so I think a lot of our work is actually around trying to make it as difficult as possible for people to steal bikes, whatever situation that's in. And part of that is around what we, the police, can do in terms of reducing the number of people that are out there trying to steal bikes. It's partially around what we and the police and the council can do around making sure there are lots of really good places to lock your bike securely. But it is also about what individuals who cycle and who park their bikes do around making it as difficult as possible for people to steal bikes, even if they've just left their bike unattended for a couple of minutes yeah and to follow on from that i think what owen said is is crystal clear on on the approaches that we're looking at taking and in oxford as part of the safer streets project that we've been working on within a part of east oxford the focus has been much around the behavioral attitude of uh, bike owners and how they're locking those bikes in the area we did some visual surveying at the start of the project to determine the levels of quality of the locking practices used within the area. And predominantly, when we came out with the three levels of good, okay, and bad, we were at nearly sort of 80% of bad locking practice, which is where we viewed one particular element of the bike was locked locked securely to some form of railing or something outside the front of a property. So really looking at the evidence of that, we kind of wanted to focus around the informative education side of registering your cycle and understanding the details for your bike and your ownership responsibilities with that bike and then also practice of the locking um, element itself so a lot of education or information has been sent directly to residents and students in the area to encourage them to enhance the level of locking practice that they're using in terms of incorporating all three core elements of your bike of the frame and wheels but also utilizing maximum security locks where possible and as part of the program we're also offering them an additional lock to enhance whatever it is they're already using to facilitate that going on so we hope to then see towards the end of the project um, the reverse when we come to looking at the data evaluation again and hope to see that that 80 percent of bad locking has reduced and we're getting more okay and good levels of locking across the area because then we'll know we really tested that that style of intervention which ultimately will then help feed back into our partners to go this is where we do need to focus and this is where we need to push whatever resources we have got to really help try and change the social approach to owning a bike uh, Owen, could we uh, turn to you and ask you about your geography background? How does that help you fight um, bicycle crime? Yes, yeah, so geography is a, is a really important kind of uh, area or subject to have, I think, when we're looking at the study of crime. And it's come in so useful for me, certainly, um, working on projects like this. So there's a couple of really key areas that I think geography links into the study of crime. And um, the first is uh, our kind of abilities around mapping. We, we tend to spend quite a lot of time looking at maps and you might be a super map nerd like me, but um, mapping skills are really important in helping to identify hotspots of crime and particularly in being able to communicate that back to colleagues. So not everyone I work with um, is as brilliant uh, as data as I try to be. And so using maps is a really good way of often communicating that quite complicated information back to someone else um, who might not have um, yeah, quite the same kind of analytical background as, as you. 
But I think also in geography, we spend a lot of time looking at kind of demographics. We look at where different people live. We look at the differences between areas. We're quite used to doing that. Um, and that really helps us sometimes understand who we think is at more risk of particular types of crime and therefore where we might want to, for example, target some of our preventative work in any particular place. We also have some really good skills around surveying. So whether it be um, going out and doing field work, understanding how rivers have changed over a particular period or understanding how an urban landscape's changed maybe over 20, 30 years, all of those come in useful when it comes to getting out um, into the city and understanding how bike uh, theft, bike crime might change across different areas. What is it that might be contributing to that? Is it um, that, that, that uh, the streets are particularly different? Is it that they've got different types of streetlights? All of those skills we pick up as part of our kind of um, training and learning around fieldwork. Um, but I think also most importantly, we've got some really good skills around problem solving. We tend to, in geography, look at a problem from a lot of different areas and using a lot of kind of different subjects or approaches to help us understand a bit more about that. And those are all really useful skills when it comes to looking at crime, because crime, as I think you started to hear today, is, is not necessarily just as simple as the police needing to be involved. It requires us to have a really good understanding about a whole range of different things and really importantly, uh, the communities underneath, because crime has to affect someone. And by understanding those communities, we've got a much better idea about how we can prevent that crime from happening in the first place. That's really great to hear that analytical and problem solving skills from from secondary school and from undergraduate and master's degrees filters into to work in in the police force and in people's professional lives. From your analysis, what patterns and trends have you revealed? I think you mentioned a moment ago lighting and, and, and hotspots. Yeah, so, so sometimes when it comes to looking at um, understanding patterns and trends, we try to use an acronym called VOLTAGE. And VOLTAGE stands for Victims, Offenders, Locations, Times, Attractors, Groups and Enhancers. And it's a good way of us being able to make sure that we're looking at crime from a number of different areas. So specifically around Oxford and the area that we're looking at as part of the Safer Streets Fund, we know that the victims tend to be quite young. People who've had their bikes stolen are generally aged between kind of 20, 24. And we know, and, and we know that we've got a number of students or a lot of students that live within that area. So that kind of makes sense from our understanding of the people who live within that particular area of the city. In terms of offenders, bike crime is a really tricky one because we don't often get enough information or enough uh, uh, kind of lines of inquiry that enable us to progress an investigation to actually identify someone that we think is responsible. So we don't always have a lot of information about people we think are responsible for bike theft. What we do know is that the people that we do think are responsible for bike theft aren't necessarily just going out and stealing one bike. And we think they are stealing a number of bikes, sometimes across a number of different days and even years. We've got people who um, have been persistently involved in bike theft in the city. When it comes to locations, we've got some really clear hotspots. And these are often at street junctions when it comes to people kind of beginning or ending their journey, trying to leave their bike um, somewhere pretty memorable, but also where there's a lot of space. So we often find that kind of at big road junctions where you've got big wide pavements and railings where people might want to put their bike but we also have a number of hotspots across some of the residential streets. So bikes that have been stolen from outside people's home addresses. And there are a couple of areas where that seems to happen much more frequently than others. Times are really difficult because we know that most bike thefts are unwitnessed. We don't see a theft happening. People tend to come back at the end of the day and find that their bike has been stolen. But what we do know is that they tend to happen more frequently in the afternoon than at any other time period. And also, they seem to happen much more during the week. And that kind of makes sense when we think about people using their bike to get to or from work or to or from university. Um, attractors, we've got a, a specific area of the, um, of the zone that we're looking at um, where lots of different roads come together. It's got a couple of shops in. It brings a lot of different people um, there for different reasons. And that is a bit of an attractor of a number of different crime types. But um, it's also quite an interesting one when it comes to looking at bike theft and how that then changes throughout the day there. Um, in groups, we try and look at whether we think um, that crime is linked to a particular organised crime group or a number of organised crime groups. So groups of people that come together for the intent of kind of committing criminality. And we don't necessarily see a huge amount of evidence for that, specifically within the area of the city that we're working in. But I know that um, Mark might have some examples of where that has been the case 
um, in other parts of the UK. And then finally, when it comes to enhancers, we know that the same area as we're looking at for the Safer Streets Fund has been one that um, historically we've seen higher levels of drug misuse and of drug dealing. And we do see some kind of relationship, although it's one that we're still trying to work on at the moment, um, around higher levels of drug misuse and higher levels of um, cycle theft. And we think that might be that, unfortunately, um, some of the individuals who will be um, kind of quite our persistent drug users are also quite significantly involved in um, acquisitive crime, which is what we call basically things being stolen. And we know as part of that, there will be individuals that are stealing bikes to try and sell them on again um, for a profit. And then we'll unfortunately use that money to go towards um, paying for their drug habit. So that's what the kind of picture looks like locally. But I know that um, certainly nationally, uh, Mark might have some some thoughts about how that might differ or might be similar. Yeah, so um, so nationally, um, obviously, I've already said we get about 95,000 bikes a year stolen, although over the last couple of years, we've actually seen a reduction. So as you'd imagine, during the pandemic, we've seen a reduction, although we did we did some, see some spikes um, as we came out of lockdown, but then went back into lockdown. Uh, seasonal trends, we know that seasonally we will start to see an increase in cycle crime from about May on. Uh, with it peaking in July and August. Um, interestingly, there's a second peak in October, but um, if you think about it, that's when the universities start to uh, go back uh, and all the new students and all the new bikes, uh, all, all the hotspot locations tend to be university cities. So that's something else uh, we're aware of. Average bike of us, uh, average recorded loss of a bike is about 400 pounds still um obviously that's going to go up as uh, e-bikes become more prevalent and you know we've already seen that it was really difficult to get a bike during the pandemic because they were all sold out everywhere so uh, we know that uh, we're likely to see that rise and then again we know our hotspot locations based on the police data uh, you won't be surprised to know that the Metropolitan Police uh, is the number one location in the country uh, with Thames Valley and Hampshire. It, a lot of the uh, the counties around London, they, they're really the areas in which we see sort of the greatest cycle crime. Uh, but that's per volume. And actually, when you break it down into a uh, number of cycle crime per thousand population, it kind of shifts a little bit. So Cambridgeshire suddenly becomes the number one hotspot. Uh, with Thames Valley and uh, places like Humberside, which suddenly come onto that as well. Um, interestingly, a lot of those hotspots are actually university cities, as I've said. And when you go into the hotspot analysis, where you'll find is a, a, a police force area will come up as a as a centre of cyclone. We'll actually drill down into the DL. You'll see there are really quite just a few distinct areas where crime is happening, mostly city centres and uh, places like that so um, your Cambridge, Oxford, Southampton, Portsmouth, Hull, Central London, Bristol, Bournemouth so it, those are really the hot spots. Um, type of locks used again this is one of the issues 73% of all crime uh, we have no idea uh, we don't know what bike locks they used for the ones we do know it's a mix of D-lock cable and chains um, all cycle crime accounts for about 2% of all recorded crime. So it's not a huge amount of crime, but it's still a sizable amount that we can make a bit of an impact on. Um, and uh, was even the bicycle locked? We don't even know. You know, 43% of people don't even state if their bike was locked or not. So it's difficult to understand what we need to do to, to uh, educate those people because we just haven't got that information. Uh, places where bikes get stolen from you again this is an interesting one you'd think that most bikes are stolen from the streets or in public um actually uh street locations for bikes being stolen only account for about 34 percent uh 29 of all bikes are stolen from residential premises which kind of says that people are getting their bikes stolen from sheds and garages where probably they don't lock them up inside they just put them in the garage and then leave it there and actually, if they applied some good locking techniques to the bikes uh, in the garages and sheds, might actually prevent a lot of crime. 11% uh, educational establishments. So again, you know, our universities, our schools, there's good opportunities there to uh, educate there and to make sure we, uh, we've got some good measures in place to protect property there. 
and about 4% are transport hubs, so your railway stations, your bus stations. Uh, age ranges, we know our kind of key demographic is male, 16 to 21 years old. They're the ones who tend to get their bikes stolen more than anyone. Um, under 16s is, uh, again, uh, another key demographic. And as the age profile increases, we actually see it tailing off. Um, only about 6% of victims are female. Um, and then some of the motivations we see the offenders, the reasons why they steal bikes is partly there's a there's a method of transport for them for short-term use. Um, they, they're in need of cash for drugs or whatever. Um, and then there's a, there's a slightly more organized side of it as well. So we see offenders targeting specific bicycles uh, to sell on. Uh, we've had some really good operations across the country where we've we've actually taken out um, sellers on your your online marketplaces who have who have had like two three hundred bikes in their possession or stolen. So um, there is an organised element to it as well. Um, so when we actually look at bike recovery, we don't recover an awful lot of bikes. Only about three percent of bikes uh, stolen bikes have been recovered. So there's more we can do around that. Um, and then actually, where, where are those actually being sold? And whereas traditionally, we, you would have had a look at your, your high street secondhand shops, actually now it's all online. So 52% uh, of, all, of all online resales are through an online shop and an auction site, uh, which makes that a little bit more challenging for us to uh, actually get into those, um, your gum trees, your Ebays, your Facebook marketplaces, to carry out some more due diligence checks to make sure we're tackling organized criminality on those websites. The organized criminality and, and the more targeted aspect um, sounds like it revolves around student areas um, and and something that Aidan discussed in the first talk of this podcast um, being linked to the increase in value of some bicycles as they get more expensive. Is that is that Correct. Um, again, it, it, without actually doing some meaningful analysis on that, I, 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 it's difficult for me to say, but it, it, it's not unheard of. We know that students are uh, would be key targets for cycle crime just because of the sheer volume in, uh, in our student cities, the number of bikes that are available, um, you know, the, the potential cost and value of them. Um, and there's opportunities for people to go out and steal them in bulk because of just the number of bikes that you can go choose from. So, um, yeah, this is a possibility. Yeah. And of course, in, in Oxford and Cambridge, the use of the car um, as, as a form of transport is, is um, discouraged. So I guess there's a, just a naturally a higher volume of cyclists. Yeah, that's right. Um, Jamie, could we go to you now um, to ask about uh, specifically what... Uh, should or could be done by a bike owner to prevent bicycle crime in Oxford, for example? Yeah, of course. So I think we've talked about it a little bit, but what we really want to try and see in Oxford and what we've kind of agreed as part of our action plan with our partners is, is to really upsell the importance of the locking practice of the bike registration processes um, and then the the understanding of and the importance of understanding that the same locking practice really should be utilised whether you're out or at home, um, as because as the superintendent explained, you know we have had as much if not more bikes going from individual residential properties as we have from street locations. So a lot of our focus will be around engaging the community with both through our students and residential networks to understand. Um, the ways to lock a bike working from the most expensive part of your frame to then your wheels and understanding how easy and accessible they are to a thief um, to take them so those are the kind of things that we're looking at alongside obviously with our partners trying to improve the availability of the style of cycle parking facilities that are available to the public oxford generically is very um one-sided in terms of offering sheffield stands to people home to utilize to lock their bikes however they leave the bike entirely exposed um, from all elements and don't necessarily encourage people to lock them in the most appropriate ways especially if you're an individual and carries one 
block within your property. So we're looking at a, a street pod to put in on some residential streets where we know that residents don't have the ability to access the rear gardens of their properties and have small frontages. So we find a lot of bikes hanging off of the fronts of properties that aren't secure. So we're putting some street pods on the residential streets to enable them to have an ability to lock them more securely um, to a sufficiently secured location where actually the front wheel itself will be encased in in an encasement of a recyclable plastic uh, body so that they don't have to worry necessarily about locking that front part of the bike but they can focus on the rear part so we're hoping that a combination of understanding better practice of locking understanding the types of locks that you're using as was previously mentioned but also registering the bike so it makes it far more easy for us to identify those stolen bicycles out on the area and likely get them returned to the owner which is a key factor of what we really want to improve on um, as well as then giving them the opportunity to to better lock their bikes in a suitable location we think we hope long term will we'll provide us some really good evidence to really take that out further afield and we hope that they as individuals then will then amend their behaviors towards those um, different elements that we're working on to really kind of enhance across the board the social element and, and approach towards owning a bike Finally, and looking to the future, um, there are growing concerns over poor air quality in urban areas, and there are issues with public transport in rural areas. Can I ask you all, um, how will cycling use and behaviour change over time? And specifically, will Oxford become the next Copenhagen? I mean, I think for Oxford um, is a really interesting one because it's, um, you know, it advertises itself as a cycling city when you when you drive into it on the main roads on its on its signs as you come into the city. However, it's very much been a motoring industry of a city where you know you had the previous we had the Morris Motors, we then went to Rover, uh, and we now have Mini's headquarters in Oxford as well in Cowley uh, alongside Harley Davidson which has its European HQ in Oxford as well so we're very much um, part of both worlds but it does very much want to become a more sustainable city long term this month it just introduced its first low traffic neighbourhoods within Cowley um, which are in for a trial period of six months so we'll see how those have an impact on people's viewpoints towards less movement around neighbourhoods with vehicles. But they're also introducing its zero, first zero emission zone in the city centre later on this year, um, with the intention of that being upscaled within the coming years after it. So we're really seeing a sustained effort in terms of um, utilising these different um, large-scale approaches to minimise the use of polluting vehicles within the city and really upscale the idea of sustainable travel. But um, I think it will be quite a long road for the city in terms of really deciding where it will end up because it does have still such a large motoring industry around it where people still support it and very much um, approve the idea of still using motor vehicles and being access, being able to access the city centres with those. So um, it's an interesting time, but I think it's one where hopefully in the current climate we'll have seen the benefits of less vehicles in the city centre and, and how much the pollution dropped during the pandemic. And hopefully those are the kind of key factors that will sell it longer term for, for Oxford. And fingers crossed, yeah, we do become that bit more of a cleaner, greener city. Owen and Mark, do you want to come in on um, the future of cycling or um, yeah, so, shall we leave it there? Uh, no, so um, it, I think the pandemic has shown us that the government are really keen to uh, push for more sustainable options around travel. Uh, they've invested heavily during the pandemic around cycling infrastructure. Uh, the uh, For England, They've got their cycling and walking strategy with a real push to uh, get an increase in uptake on that because of the obvious benefits uh, to the environment and to people's health and well-being as well. So uh, we're already seeing in many, many cities across the country kind of those infrastructures being built really quickly. Uh, we've seen that, uh, you know, bicycles, there was a massive, massive increase in sales of bicycles during the pandemic. Um, there's a shortage of parts for bikes again because of uh, the uptake. Um, and we know that there's going to be more support for the use of e-bikes 
you know, under cycle to work schemes and government grants and all sorts of stuff. So um, I think the, the uptake in cycling is only going to grow. But with that comes uh, the added risk of a struggling economy and the risk of acquisitive crime uh, and opportunist crime rising. So um, we just need to be alive to that risk and make sure we have our contingencies in place to deal with it as it develops, really. But it's a really exciting, um, it's a really exciting time for cyclists, I guess. You know, it's, they, they're being heard. They, they, the country is changing to support their, their life. And even things like e-scooters, which are probably going to be the next issue um, at some point, will probably be legalised potentially. Um, and even though they're not legal at the moment, you you can go into any city centre and see the number of e-scooters that are taking over the city. So um, all issues that which we need to look at. It will be really interesting to see, I think, over the next couple of months when um, the when workplaces potentially start to open back up again, actually what that looks like, because we've got people who are likely to be uh, making some really important decisions that, that, that we haven't necessarily had the option before. We're going to have people that maybe won't be so keen on getting on a busy bus. They might be a bit more interested in jumping on a bike instead. This is highly likely we'll be staying much more local than maybe we ever have been before. We might continue to work from home much more. But we know that all of this work, um, this kind of switch over to cycling, um, as Jamie really kind of well said, this is all going to have um, a bit of a conflict potentially to the way that we've already already done stuff. And some of the infrastructure we're putting into place might affect how we are able to use cars. And I think going back to a lot of what this podcast was about and looking at how this links back into geography as geographers we're in such a good position to be able to understand some of where this conflict might happen and equally do a bit of planning now and a little bit of research and analysis that might help us understand a bit better how we can plan for what's going to happen over the next kind of five ten years so as mark said it is a really really exciting time and i think we're all um looking forward to seeing what the impact of some of the work that we've done um in oxford and that's happening um all over the uk at the moment is going to have um, over the next couple of months. Great. Nick, Aidan, Mark, Owen and Jamie, thank you all very much for joining us today for these two talks. It's, uh, it's certainly an exciting time for us all to hop on our bikes after locking and unlocking them securely. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free, School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.